Welcome to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders, hosted by Cheryl Toth and Mike Sakopoulos, and produced by the American Association for Physician Leadership. Welcome to Sound Practice, the podcast of the American Association for Physician Leadership. I'm Mike Sakopoulos. Today's episode will focus on physician leadership from a historic perspective. I will be speaking with Janice Numura, author of The Doctor's Blackwell. Her book is a look at the first female physician, 19th century medical education, and early public health efforts. Numura provides a fascinating story with some lessons for today. I hope you enjoy this episode of Sound Practice. My guest today is best-selling author Janice Numura. She holds degrees from both Yale and Columbia. Janice has received a Public Scholar Award from the National Endowment for Humanities. Her latest book is The Doctor's Blackwell. Janice Numura, welcome to Sound Practice. Thank you so much for having me. It's uh, absolutely my pleasure. Let's start off with the, uh, the obvious question. Who were Emily and Elizabeth Blackwell? Well, if you're familiar with their names at all, you're probably familiar with Elizabeth Blackwell's name and the phrase first woman doctor pops into your mind shortly thereafter. She was the first woman in this country to receive a medical degree in 1849. And her sister, Emily, five years younger, followed her into the profession at her instruction uh, and received her own medical degree five years later in 1854. Very nice. So of all people, what inspired you to specifically pick these women in this topic in the field of, of medicine? Well, I, I think that in order to do this kind of work, this kind of long-term, long-form research and writing, uh, you really have to connect to your subject matter on, on an identity level. Uh, my first w- book was about um, women in 19th century Japan. Um, half of my family is in Japan. My husband was born there. So there was a, a, a deep connection to the material that was personal. Um, so when I went looking for a second project, I tried, took a look inside and said, well, what else is in there? Um, and what else was in there turned out in this case to be pre-med me from 1989. Um, I uh, graduated from high school and entered college with the intention of pursuing medicine, um, but then was seduced by the humanities. Um, but that that love of, of science and medicine always remained. And as my own daughter grew up and um, decided to pursue medicine herself, um, it was uh, sort of an ecstatic opportunity to circle back to a first love and and really dive deep into the history of medicine, which in the 19th century is fascinating, um, and tell a story of two women, not just one, who, who really deserve to be reintroduced to the present. Now, at the time that the, the Blackwell sisters were pursuing a medical education, there were different types of of medical uh, schools, uh, were there not? You had different, it, they may not have been open to the sisters, but there were different areas of, of medicine, some that only taught plant-based things, homeopath, and there was a bit of a competition. Um, how did the, how did Elizabeth come to choose the medical school that she selected? Well, I would say it chose her. Um, she, she was rejected everywhere and um, kind of slid in through a loophole to tiny Geneva Medical College in Geneva, New York. Um, It's true, there were, um, at this moment, at the late 1840s, um, traditional medical schools um, 
uh, were being joined by um, what were called eclectic medical schools that focused more on sort of homeopathy. Um, uh, Elizabeth knew that she wanted to prove a point about what women could do, that they could be doctors like any men. Um, so it was important to her to, to find her way into a medical school that um, was part of the establishment, that wasn't newfangled in any way, that wasn't alternative. Um, she wanted to prove to the establishment that she could do this. So she looked only at those medical schools um, that were allopathic, more traditional. And Geneva College finally let her in. Um, of course, once she got there, she rose to the top of the class. Can you give us a little history of Geneva Medical School? Uh, well, Geneva College um, was came first, um, a, a mm -hmm. small liberal arts college uh, at, at the northern end of Seneca Lake in, in the Finger Lakes. Um, it opened a small medical department not that many years before uh, Elizabeth arrived. Uh, and it has since evolved uh, into Hobart and William Smith Colleges, who proudly claim Elizabeth as their own. Um, the medical department has um, evolved away from Geneva. I think both Syracuse and Upstate Medical Center claim um, kinship to that program. Is it fair to say that she was not welcomed with open arms? <laughs> well, um, the, the story that's told about her admission to Geneva College is that um, she was at the time studying in Philadelphia with a prominent physician there. And uh, that physician had written her a letter of recommendation with her application. So when the faculty at Geneva received this, they weren't quite ready to dismiss it out of hand, sort of wary of insulting her sponsor. Um, but they really didn't want her to come. So they hit upon the plan of punting the question to the students and um, brought them this, this outrageous application from a woman and said, well, if any of you object in any way, she's not going to come, but we'll put it to a student vote. And the students um, being sort of a boisterous provincial bunch um, decided first that, there's, that, that their professors were, um, were being timid and um, second, that this was probably an opportunity for some good fun. They, they also sort of suspected that it was a prank being played on them by a, a rival medical school. So they unanimously and raucously decided, yes, unanimous, uh, a, a unanimous yes for this, this strange idea of a female classmate. Um, and then the faculty had to <laughs> abide by their, their earlier comment that they would let her in if the, if the students decided it was okay. And, and, uh, and then the students forgot all about it. And three weeks later, in walked a small young woman into the lecture hall. Surprise. <laughs> well, so, so really, somewhat of uh, cowardice cloaked in democracy on how she was admitted. Um, uh, yeah, sort of a, a, a nobody really wanting to take responsibility for making change. Well, one of the things I was interested to learn that it was not just men that objected to female physicians at the time, women such as Harriet Beecher Stowe and Florence Nightingale objected to the idea of a female physician. Were you surprised by that opposition? Yeah, I, I would say that in the case of Harriet Beecher Stowe and Florence Nightingale, well, in the case of Harriet Beecher Stowe, who was a friend of, of the Blackwells, um, it wasn't so much that she objected to the idea of a woman doctor, it was that she thought the, the, the path toward proving that a woman could be such was so arduous that she would not advise any friend of hers to try it. Um, Florence Nightingale um, was actually a friend of Elizabeth Blackwell's, um, but her vision for the role of women in medicine 
was as nurses um, promoting hygiene and, and prevention. Um, women in general objected to the idea of a, a woman doctor also though, and surprisingly, um, largely because the very phrase female physician at the time in the 1840s and 50s tended to connote an abortionist, someone who was working in the shadows um, on the wrong side of the law, um, whether or not her, her, um, her, her, her intentions in women's health were, uh, were good intentions, um, a woman doctor was not seen as as a as someone you you would consult unless you were involved in a scandal. So um, genteel women who had the who had the money to choose their own healthcare um, sh often shied away from the idea of of a lady doctor and preferred to, to see the men that they had always seen, which is was was not what Elizabeth was expecting. I think. Well, it seems to have irritated her. At least <laughs> you quote Elizabeth as is denouncing women as petty, trifling best ridden, gossiping, stupid, and inane, um, <laughs> in desperate need of, of leadership uh, from a superior uh, like herself. Um, interesting quote, right? I mean, you can't right. help but I, hear, feel the irritation coming. coming right. Forth. Well, I think, I think that, that's part of what makes this story quite modern, is that um, Elizabeth Blackwell, like many strong female leaders today, could be quite misogynist. Um, she had a dim view of women who were not as accomplished as she were, was, and was wary that, um, you know, allying herself with women who weren't as accomplished as she was um, might undermine her accomplishment. Um, that, to me, was very familiar from right now. Um, I think, uh, unfortunately, that's something that a lot of women um, can 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 recognize from both sides. Jess, what made Elizabeth? story stand apart from Rebecca Crumpler, the first female African-American doctor, or uh, Gertie Corey, the first Nobel Prize winning female? I'm afraid I don't know their stories deeply enough to be able to speak much about the differences in their paths. Um, can you? Well, un un understood, but I think that there are a number of, of females that were pioneers. I think mm -hmm. you would agree in, in different different areas, and we've we've spoken a good bit about Elizabeth. Maybe you could tell us a little bit more about her sister Emily. Certainly, um, Emily, oddly, um, was better suited to the field than Elizabeth was. Elizabeth sort of anointed Emily. She she realized that this path that she had chosen to be a woman doctor was lonely and difficult and she was going to need some company. Um, the Blackwells um, had kind of a clannishness. They tended to esteem each other more than most other people. So she looked about her and her four sisters and chose Emily as being the most brilliant one. Emily had already um, proved great interest in natural science and really took to the field um, in a way that was much more um, passionate in some ways than Elizabeth. Elizabeth diverged toward the ideas of public health quite early in her career, but Emily really um, became a surgeon, a practitioner, an obstetrician, a medical professor. Um, her view of what a woman in medicine should be was a practitioner as skilled and talented as any man, whereas Elizabeth really thought more about women in medicine as being sort of teachers armed with science, people who would show the world um, better ways to be. Um, they, they kind of diverged in that way. Um, I think it's interesting that Emily is 
mostly eclipsed by Elizabeth Blackwell's reputation because she certainly worked more as a doctor um, and really sustained the institutions that they founded together, the New York Infirmary for Indigent Women and Children and its Women's Medical College. Where did Emily train? She, it's interesting. Um, you would have thought that um, Elizabeth's success at Geneva College would have opened the doors of more medical institutions, but in fact, they closed more firmly after Elizabeth because most people were shocked that she had been able to be so successful. Uh, even Geneva College did not want Emily to, to, um, to, to follow her sister. So Emily um, struggled to find a place also because at this by this point, by the time she was looking, women's medical colleges had begun to open. And if women's medical colleges were open, the men could easily say, please don't come here. There's a women's college for you. So mm -hmm. Emily eventually found her way to Rush in Chicago and had a wonderful first year there, uh, after which the trustees got cold feet and asked her to please not return. Um, undaunted, she pivoted and found her way to Cleveland Medical College and finished there. Cleveland Medical College is now uh, Case Western. Very interesting. And she was, Emily was the younger of the sisters, correct? Yes, she was five years younger. Uh, you mentioned the New York Infirmary. Uh, what became of that institution? Well, it, it persisted. Um, it uh, uh, existed on, on Livington Place in New York uh, for most of a century, uh, and it has since been absorbed into what is now um, uh, part of Weill Cornell Medicine, New York Presbyterian, Lower Manhattan Hospital. Um, they proudly preserve some of the sort of artifacts of, of the Blackwells in medicine down there today. Interesting. So if I were to, to show up there, are the, the buildings the same? What, what would my my experience be like? No, unfortunately. Well, the, the original location of the New York Infirmary for Indigent Women and Children in 1857 uh, still stands in Greenwich Village, uh, a small building, um, proudly uh, bearing a plaque to that effect. Um, it The infirmary didn't stay long in that space uh, and moved several times, but none of the uh, other original buildings remain. Um, they've all been replaced by modern buildings, unfortunately. And what did the Blackwell sisters do during the Civil War? Well, that was interesting. Um, the Right after Fort Sumter in 1861, um, they called a meeting of their supporters and donors to the infirmary to talk about how to focus the, um, the energies of the women of New York toward the Union cause. Uh, they drafted an appeal in the New York Times and invited interested women to join a gathering at Cooper Union. Um, and the next day, thousands of women showed up at Cooper Union um, to, to find out how to help. And out of that meeting grew what was called the Women's Central Association of Relief. And out of that organization um, grew the U.S. Sanitary Commission. So you can, you can draw a straight line from, from Elizabeth and Emily Blackwell's living room to the U.S. Sanitary Commission if you want to. Um, the Blackwell sisters uh, were in charge of identifying, vetting, and training women to send as nurses to the front. Um, but they quickly became disillusioned with the war effort, even though they were um, eager to put their best efforts toward it. Um, they quickly discovered that New York's male physicians were not really interested in partnering with female physicians in the training of nurses. For instance, their own infirmary was excluded from the institutions that were tasked with training nurses for the front. 
Um, and then Dorothea Dix was appointed to the main leadership role in Washington. She was not uh, a healthcare professional in any way. She was a lobbyist. They called her the meddler in chief. Um, <laughs> and they became disillusioned and frustrated. And eventually after a year of effort, uh, withdrew their support for um, the, the, the Sanitary Commission and, um, and turned their attentions to their next project, which was the opening of a women's medical college attached to their infirmary. And tell us a little bit about how that endeavor went. Very well. I mean, it, it was an irony, really. They had never wanted uh, to support the idea of women studying medicine separately from men. They disdained the women's medical colleges that existed in Boston and Philadelphia and, and in New York already. Um, but those, in, those women's institutions were, were turning out uh, female medical graduates who the Blackwell sisters thought were poorly trained. Um, and in the end, they said, okay, we will change our minds. We will open a women's medical college, but it will be more rigorous and more progressive and more practical than any of the existing men's medical institutions, including the ones that we attended ourselves. So they opened um, a college that uh, had a longer term, three terms instead of two, um, courses that built on each other instead of repeating, um, much more practical training at the bedside. Um, and, uh, and they ran, well, Emily ran that, that, that college through the end of the, of the 19th century until um, institutions like Cornell and Johns Hopkins began to admit women themselves, at which point she closed it saying, okay, it is no longer necessary. Do you agree that the initially the women's medical colleges provided inferior training uh, the more traditional or the ones that were uh, male-based? Well, I mean, the brightest lights of the medical establishment were not choosing to teach at female medical colleges. So um, in terms of prestige, in terms of um, being able to say I was trained by the best, um, it wasn't possible at that point for women to say that. Um, also, some of those graduates were arriving for further practical training at the New York Infirmary to be trained by the Blackwells as, as graduate residents. And the Blackwells were not impressed with, um, with the level these students were arriving with. Did some of the change in curriculum that the Blackwell sisters instituted, did that in the future carry over to other medical colleges? I believe it was an influence. Again, um, the things like the Flexner report are sort of outside the scope of the story I was telling. It ha that happened just as the Blackwell sisters died. Um, but yeah, I think they were very forward looking and a lot of the, the practices that they were putting in place um, became incorporated into the idea of what a properly accredited medical school should be. Tell me a little bit about how Emily and Elizabeth uh, how their lives ended. Well, um, interestingly, after being, um, you know, so closely in partnership in the founding of these institutions in New York, um, as soon as the Women's Medical College was underway, they parted ways. Elizabeth went back to England, where she had always preferred to be. Um, the, the Blackwells had been born in England and had lived there as young children. Um, Elizabeth went back to England for good for the for the last four decades of her life, and. Um, really focused more and more on public health, on prevention, on policy, on writing and lecturing. Um, whereas Emily remained in New York at the helm of the infirmary and the Women's Medical College and ran them um, 
extremely competently for the last 40 years of her life. They, they both died in 1910. Interesting. As we wrap things up, Janice, are, are there lessons that we can apply today from Emily and Elizabeth Blackwell's story or stories? For me, the biggest takeaway is the fact that um, they changed the world for women and they were often out of step with the emerging women's movement of the time. Um, they, for instance, did not believe that suffrage should be the first priority of the women's movement. Um, they believed that giving women the vote when they were still likely to vote the way their husbands and fathers told them to was, was thinking backwards. Um, to me, there, there's a lesson there about, um, about our, how we see heroes and how sometimes our heroes are, are out of step with our own ideas of what is right. And just because they are doesn't mean we necessarily need to discard their achievements. Um, I think this is a moment where, as we see new female leaders taking positions they've never taken before, like our new vice president, um, it's really important to make sure that we don't um, sort of slide back into an earlier mode of needing heroines to be um, sort of pretty and perky and adorable um, that often, especially female heroines weren't, and that's okay. Um, it's important to be able to honor them um, with their flaws intact, I would say. Well said. Leadership and intelligence and grit comes in all forms and packages, right? <laughs> exactly. Um, this has been fascinating. I thank you very much for your time and highly recommend The Doctors of Blackwell. It's a great read. Janice Namara has been my guest. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. It was a pleasure. More information concerning Janice Namura and her new book, The Doctors Blackwell, may be found in the show notes for this episode. Many thanks to Janice for joining us. I hope that you've enjoyed this episode. If you did, please consider rating us. If you would like to give us feedback directly, feel free to email us at feedback at soundpracticepodcast.com. I hope you will join us next time on Sound Practice. We release a new episode every other Wednesday. You've been listening to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders. Check out the show notes for this episode at soundpracticepodcast.com. If you have any suggestions for future episodes, we'd love to hear them. Email us at info at soundpracticepodcast.com. Subscribe to Sound Practice wherever you listen to podcasts so you can automatically receive our episodes. And please rate us and comment on the podcast in iTunes and Google Play. Sound Practice is presented and produced by the team at American Association for Physician Leadership. We are the world's premier organization for all aspects of physician leadership in every sector of healthcare. Learn more at physicianleaders.org. Had his holy cow, that man Robin went to Kapow.